Welcome back. Richard, it's good to see you this morning. Good to see you too. Um, another hurricane in the uh, coming our way. Yes. Um, getting ready for that next week. So well, This time of year, there's there's almost always one coming our way. It's just a right. matter of whether it makes it or not. So Yeah. But what month is this? Um, September. So this is early in the hurricane season. Yes. We're, we still have a little bit to go. So. Right. Yeah. Well, so... But otherwise, all is good. Uh, the weather's cooling off a little bit, a little less humid, um, a little bit cooler in the in the low 90s and high 80s. Yeah. So, um, but you're doing well? Doing, doing all right. Doing all right. And, you know, today we're going to talk about kind of an extension from last week. But, um, you know, thinking about are you doing all right? It's, it's this idea right. that we talked about last week is about symptoms and and dis- the difference between symptoms and disorders and how you know so often we are working to treat symptoms but we're not really looking at that underlying um, the underlying cause of the symptoms and because of that we can we tend to get our treatment wrong we tend to have some difficulty helping people you know overcome some of those symptoms and so today we're going to extend that conversation because um, just thinking about some other ways to look at treatment, um, you know, sort of the traditional um, cookie cutter uh, treatment versus what we're going to call personalized care, personalized treatment. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a, a growing body of literature now that um, we know that mental illness in general, rates of mental illness in general are increasing, especially depression and anxiety. Uh, most of us are aware that rates are increasing among women and minorities and teenagers. Um, and there's another um, issue of whether what we do as mental health professionals is really effective right. in meeting that need. And so are we doing um, are we doing the best work that we can, given the increased rates of um, uh, the increasing uh, rates of mental illness? So not only do we question ourselves or how are we doing um, as, as mental health professionals, but also are we really meeting the needs of, 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 of people who are, uh, who seem to be struggling more. And so we, in the uh, last week, we talked about this notion that just because you have symptoms doesn't mean you have a mental illness, doesn't mean you have a disorder, that there's a big difference between symptoms and a disorder. We want to talk a little bit more about that today, um, and there are actually two uh, separate articles that that we're, we're going to be talking about today. Um, and it offers each of these offers a solution to the challenges that we face. And when I say we, I mean uh, we as professionals, but also um, challenges that our clients or our patients face in getting the kind of care that they really need, uh, effective uh, effective care that they need. Absolutely. As we've talked about many times on the podcast, our perspective is, you know, the most one of the most important things that you can do is ensure that you have the right diagnosis. And, you know, so often people come in and they will claim to already have a diagnosis or they will talk about a diagnosis as though um, as though a diagnosis has been evaluated and made. And Really, what they what's happened is they've looked at a cluster of symptoms, or they've maybe gone to a professional who hasn't taken some additional steps to ensure and really, you know, identify the appropriate diagnosis, and and then 
by and large, what happens is that whatever treatment was prescribed or whatever treatment one would predict should work or should be effective for that person doesn't. It doesn't work. It, it falls short. Um, sometimes the, the treatment will seem to be effective at the beginning, but then they'll, it'll lose effectiveness d- despite, you know, integrity with, you know, completing the, the treatment. Um or, or the treatment just never works. You know, people get worse or they experience other symptoms. And so, um, you know, we had the good fortune of working with um, with a, a psychiatrist in, in our in earlier in our career where that was the emphasis. Right. Um, we, right. we we have from the beginning of our tra- training been um, sort of informed and, and, and encouraged to really consider this significant importance of finding that diagnosis, identifying that diagnosis, and then applying a correct or or appropriate intervention, um, that, you know, that that then tends to be adequate. It tends to help and be beneficial for the patient. Right. Yeah, there are really two problems here. And and um, I want to try to keep this simple, but you can get the wrong diagnosis. You know, it's easy to criticize um, psychologist or psychiatrist or or uh, any professional. It's very easy to criticize, but it's these are complex problems, and there is there is not only the question of do I have the right diagnosis, which is very important. You know, uh, there's a big difference between depression. Is it depression or is it ADHD? Um, is it bipolar depression or is it reactive depression? So there's that issue of whether I have the right diagnosis, but there's a second more subtle difference. And that is, am I talking to a person who's simply having a rough time right now? They're a little bit sad. Or am I talking to a person who truly has, when I say true depression or severe depression, because we also have to get that right, that it may be depression, but it could be just a mild case of the blues or you know, a temporary setback, um, a loss, a job loss, a loss of a loved one. Um, and so you have a response to an event and there, and that's one kind of what we call depression. And there's another kind of severe or true depression that is much more, the symptoms are much more severe. So it's not just getting the right diagnosis, but it's also, am I dealing with the true version or am I dealing with the light version of a disorder? And those are important diagnostic questions that we're obligated to answer. Yeah, absolutely. And and we talk about this a lot, say, with ADHD, for example, because, you know, as I've said before on the podcast, you can create a situation, you can create an environment within which most anyone would look as though they have ADHD, right? You can... Sure. You can you can um, affect the temperature of the room. You can uh, affect how much access they have to food and water. You can you know influence what is being discussed or what is being expected of the person, and and you can create a scenario where where people have a hard time sitting still. They have a hard time focusing and, and all of that. That's not ADHD. It just means right. that you're creating that situation. And so, as you said, you, you have sort of some symptoms and characteristics that could be a, an appropriate response to what's happening in the person's life. If the right. person is very unhappy with their work, unhappy in their relationship, unhappy with so many things that's happening in their life. Yeah. They may exi- have symptoms of anxiety or depression or distress uh, in many ways, but it right. doesn't necessarily mean the same thing as 
true depression, major depressive disorder, because, you know, you're talking about something that is a result of what's happening in their life versus something that's sort of endogenous and something that's happening from inside them, that biological based uh, depressive symptoms. Right. And how often do we hear, well, I don't want to take drugs or I've taken drugs and they don't work or I've been to a therapist and it didn't do any good or it didn't help. And we hear that very often. And I, I, we believe that the reason people don't get effective treatment is that there's more to it that there's more to it than dealing with the symptoms. There isn't a lot of evidence that medication alone or even standard psychotherapies like what we call evidence-based therapies make therapy more effective over time. I mean, you know, you, you, you assume that a person has that you have some symptoms. And so you either uh, prescribe a medication or you use cognitive behavioral therapy or dialectical. So you, you sort of throw a treatment out there. If it works great, Mm -hmm. but it's not, it's not science. I mean, it's, it's more like you have these symptoms. I'm going to try this medication. You have these symptoms. I'm going to try this evidence-based therapy. Um, that has not been very successful. We we already know that, that using those standard sort of cookie cutter approaches are not effective over time. Right. Absolutely. Okay. And so, so we're looking for, so we're looking for an alternative. You and I have been looking for, okay, so if that does, if that approach doesn't work, what can we do? And I think this article offers a possible solution. Right. And and it talks about what we're referring to again as personalized treatment. And what we're talking about with personalized treatment is, is a treatment that is centered more specifically to the individual patient or client. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. It looks at the, the entire context within which the person presents and, and seeks to sort of match the, the needs of the patient, the circumstances of the patient with whatever intervention is going to be implemented. And so we, we see that very often um, as an important, uh, important considerations because when we're looking at someone who has sort of this complex presentation, you know, um, teenagers are, are a, a good example uh, of this because, you know, parents often think, well, my, my teenager is experiencing these symptoms, you know, they're angry all the time and they're, you know, they lock themselves in their room. And so I want them to get therapy. Well, if the, if a, if a patient, a teenager comes into a therapist's office and the therapist says, well, we're just going to do this CBT and we're just going to follow this routine and and, and do this, you're not going to be very successful because you're not really working with the teenager. You're just following the parents' desires and what the parent wants. CBT, that CBT approach may be evidence-based and show that it should be highly effective and should be really you know, beneficial for the kid. But if you're not looking at what's going on with the kids specifically, with, with that particular teenager, it's not going to be very effective because you're not really going to get their buy-in and they're not going to appreciate it in any way. That's right. The value is not in the therapy or in the medication. They are, those things are part of a larger intervention intervention program. Medication may be necessary, but it's just one part of a a personalized approach to treatment. Yeah, absolutely. So, So when we consider 
all of the different life circumstances that a person may be experiencing, you know, then we can tailor a specific intervention um, and, and sort of approach to treatment that, you know, it, the, the likelihood of benefiting the patient significantly increases. And so you, you mentioned there's two articles. In, in the second article, the author is addressing the issue more specifically of depression. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, when it comes to depression, it, it, it is a significant issue. I mean, it, it is one of the one of the leading causes of distress all, all over the world. Um, uh, Professor Eileen Anderson at, at Case uh, Western Reserve talks about depression as being the leading mental health challenge, not only in the United States, but it's the number one global burden in, in health right. and, um, and, and concern about a person's overall well-being, right. more so than anything else, heart disease or, or, or any other, any other illnesses. And so it's depression is a major issue that should be discussed. Right. Yeah. I didn't realize that, that um, we know that rates are increasing in the United States and it's partly the pandemic, but these rates began increasing um, 15 or 20 years ago. So it's not just the pandemic um, and it's not politics and it's not, they began increasing years ago. So we know that rates are increasing. I didn't realize they were increasing worldwide. Right. So, uh, but worldwide, about 5% of people suffer from some type of depression. But the U.S. rates are much higher than that. The U.S. rates are about 17, 18%, which is, and and that's a 70% increase in just the past eight years. So we're talking about almost by a fact, more than a factor of three. Mm-hmm. Um, there's three times as much in the United States as anywhere else in the world. In fact, the only country in the world with higher rates of depression than the United States is the Ukraine. Right. And we have, we all know the Ukrainians are going through right now. So we know the effect that war has on these kinds of things. So we're looking in our country, worldwide it's 5%. In our country, it's 18% for adults and 20% for teenagers. Right. So this is, this is a, a, a significant and troublesome increase. Now, you can say that, well, we're better at identifying it than they are in other countries. We have more resources, we have more clinics, we have more specialists. But but that's that's not a sufficient explanation for the increase. So so the first question is, why is the US so depressed? Why are we so depressed? And the simple answer is we're not sure. Right. Um, there are some factors like poverty and um, um, physical health, you know, where, where rates of physical health or worse, uh, depression tends to be increasing. But we really don't know why the U.S. is so much more depressed than everybody else. The other more important question for us as providers is why do some individuals slide into depression and others don't? Right. Uh, What, you know, if if the rates are so high, if the rates are approaching 20%, why why isn't everybody feeling this? And again, we're not sure. Right. But Probably the best explanation is something that we used to call the stress diathesis model, which is that certain individuals are simply more susceptible, more prone to depression, and life circumstances present them with significant challenges. So there's some interaction between the stress that you're feeling in your life and your vulnerability to depression or anxiety or any other of these conditions. Right. When we talk about that. when we're talking about 
um, susceptibility, many times what we're talking about is your biology. We're talking about genetics. We're talking about, you know, chemistry. We're talking about a lot of other things. So it's not surprising that those, um, those groups of people who are, who are experiencing significant changes biologically, like teenagers, mm-hmm. that they, you know, when you put them under significant amounts of stress, which we do, um, that the rates uh, and presentation of depression or anything else significantly mm-hmm. increases. So they, they right. are going through these biological changes, which changes their brain chemistry, which changes the way that everything in their body is working. And then you put them under the stress. And so it's going to be, it's going to express itself more, more, um, more readily. So that's right. Iathis' stress model helps us to understand that when you have this biologic or genetic predisposition to something, um, when mm-hmm. that stage is set, the, the addition of, of some stressor, especially a significant stressor of some sort can trigger that expression and, then, then you see it more readily. That's right. And if you have a family history of depression, remember, we inherit, we not only inherit our parents' hair color and shoe size, we also inherit their brain chemistry. And so if you have a family history of depression, you're at higher risk for depression. If you have a family history of anxiety, if there is no family history, of, then then there's less, there's a, a smaller likelihood that you're going to have, that you're going to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. A smaller likelihood doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It means a smaller likelihood. Given all of that, but the other thing that we know is that behavioral choices, how we respond emotionally, and our daily habits, um, sleep, eating, uh, drug use, alcohol use, all of these things contribute to set the stage for a person to slide into depression. So it's it's heritability, it's vulnerability, it's increased stress, but it's also a person's behavioral choices, lifestyle, emotional responses that also contribute. And this is where we return to the idea of personalization, because if, if as professionals, if we're not accounting for all of these variables, we're doing a disservice to the patient because different people have different life experiences. So I can't just impose cognitive behavioral therapy on every patient because every pa- because each patient is different. Some need it, but some don't. And that's a clinical decision that we have to make. Absolutely. And so we, we all know that, you know, when a person has authentic, true sort of endogenous biological depression, that it's more than just sort of feeling melancholy or, or having periodic episodes of sadness. Um, and we also know that when a person has that true biological endogenous depression, that medication alone, um, many times psychotherapy alone, isn't sufficient. The, the person needs more. And so when you're thinking about this idea of individualized treatment um, and personalized treatment, as I mentioned earlier, we're talking about treating the entire person. We're, we're right. talking about not just saying, hey, let's treat these symptoms. Um, you know, I think one of the most difficult right. things or one one of the biggest limitations to things like cognitive behavioral therapy or, or um, some of the other different therapeutic t- approaches is that the goal is to avoid those symptoms, for example. Um, right. You know, 
when you're feeling distressed about something, when you're feeling anxious about something, um, you know, we work really hard to stop thinking about that. We want to avoid whatever it is that's making us anxious. Well, sometimes the best approach is to attack that whatever it is that's making you anxious. If a test that you have to take tomorrow is making you super anxious, the best way to address that is to study for the test and then go take the test. Because guess what? After you finish the test, that anxiety is gone. So, so if we, if we only look at, okay, the person is experiencing anxiety, this is a treatment for anxiety. Let's give them Mm -hmm. Xanax or let's give them this treatment. But you fail to look at, you know, this is very situational. This is very specific to this situation. So all we need to do is address this part of the, the problem. Well, the, 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 the effectiveness isn't going to be there. The person isn't going to find the relief that they need. And so we need to be very personalized when it comes to addressing all of these symptoms for the person. That's right. Right. But yeah, so when we, when we talk about personalized care, we're talking about providing a range of therapies, you know, not just medication, not just a particular type of psychotherapy, but we're also talking about lifestyle changes. It's huge. You know, we we have to, we have to address those, those other issues. We also have to address underlying conditions, you know, um, you know, is the person physically healthy or do they have some chronic illness? And we need to consider that. And we use medications, but we use medications when they're necessary. So every person who has clinical depression needs individualized help and tailored solutions. Mm -hmm. And there's a a guy by the name of Richard O'Connor who wrote a book called Undoing Depression, where he, he suffered from depression because of some life experiences that he had. So he's a therapist, but he's also been dealing with depression himself. And he said, there are dozens of additional steps that people need to take um, if you truly have depression. And and, and he mirrors what you and I always tell our patients. And that is that you have to do more than just the typical therapies that we throw at people, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's psychotherapy or medication therapy. You have to talk, you have to improve their diet, right? Okay. You have to talk about diet, nutrition, more physical activity, more social contacts. Mm-hmm. Um, you may need individual therapy, uh, improving your sleep, meditation and medication. Mm-hmm. The thing about medication is that medications are usually more effective with severe depression, but they're not as effective with mild depression. Right. So if you're just struggling with mild depression, it might be good that you don't put too much stock in how effective medication will be because medications aren't as effective with mild depression as they are with severe depression. So it's not the fault of medication. It's just that medication works differently with different people. So the advice that we'd like to end up with, that we'd like to, to end with is that first of all, people with severe depression cannot climb out of the depression on their own. And Richard, I think that that's so important because, um, you know, the other morning we were having a conversation about some some patients that we're working with. And there there are those people who are experiencing depression or anxiety or or a a number of different things. Mm -hmm. Um, And and their expression or their experience of it is so entrenched in their biology. It's not just, you know, you look at them and you're like, 
man, they they have, you know, they have financial resources, they have so- social and supportive resources, they have, you know, they don't have any of these other demands or, or things. And so, you know, looking at it, at least on the surface level, for the most part, they don't have any of those environmental right. things that could be contributing to their, their right. symptoms, but yet mm-hmm. they experience it in such a debilitating manner. And when right. you see that, you see, you can tell that there, there's not a way that this person is going to climb out of this on their own. They have been going through it for so long and it is mm-hmm. so, um, a, has such a broad effect on their, their life and their lifestyle and their, everything about them that there's nothing that they can do about it by themselves. They need assistance, right. need help. That's right. If you're, if you're struggling with uh, some mild sadness, some mild depression, um, you might be able to do some deep breathing or some meditation, maybe a little medication, and it'll bring you out of that. But the more severe the disorder is, the more severe it presents itself, the more likely it is that you're going to need this personalized, very personalized and comprehensive intervention right. approach. Okay. That's number one. It's not going to get better on its own. It's deeply seated in the person's biology. Number two, uh, depression is not one and done. Uh, depression tends to recur over the lifetime. Uh, you might have it as a child. You experience it again as a teenager. You get it again in your 30s. And it tends to recur over time. And you have to be aware that you're not not just going to cure it and never have to experience it again. Chances are you are going to experience it again. And um, one of the authors um, likens the treatment of depression to something like a treatment for drug or alcohol abuse. And that is, with as with other forms of treatment, it takes a very deliberate effort. Right. You have to work at this. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it requires a lot of work on the part of the uh, professional because they have to personalize care and consider all the facets that a person is bringing. And it also requires effort on the part of the patient. Uh, they have to, you have to work at this. It's, it's like getting over drug or alcohol abuse or, or physical therapy. Right. You have to work hard to make yourself better. Um, and so it requires a deliberate effort. That's why it's different with teenagers because while parents might be highly motivated to have their child receive therapy, if the child's not highly motivated and the child isn't taking a deliberate approach, if the teenager isn't using a deliberate approach, nothing we do is going to change anything. Right. And, and, and maybe more specifically, even medication isn't even going to help in those circumstances. No. You know, if the person doesn't want to, it isn't committed to and making that deliberate effort that you're talking about medication is less is far less effective psychotherapy is far less effective it, it right. requires a an, an intentional um, approach to making mm-hmm. changes in your life and, and that's, it, right. that's why that personalized approach is so important because mm-hmm. we're not just saying here's a blanket um, you know, a, a treatment that works for most people and it should be effective for you. Right. Because mm-hmm. as soon as it, as soon as the, it's not as effective as expected, the patient loses motivation, they lose interest, they lose drive. You know, you That's have right. to make it personalized for the patient so that they 
can um, see some of that benefit. Um, it may be sure. difficult. You know, it's never easy to tell a person, well, you got to change this part of your lifestyle. You, you yeah. have to start exercising Perfect. more. You have to stop eating those kinds of foods because it's not helping you. Um, that's not easy, but it will start moving in a positive direction for the person. That's right. You know, if you if you suddenly if you suddenly get diabetes or you have a heart attack, or you have open heart surgery, you're going to be given a whole list of things you have to do. You have to change right. your diet. You have to exercise. You have to sleep differently. You have to get rid of your stressors. It's no different with these mental illnesses. Absolutely. It takes a deliberate, comprehensive effort. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for this week. We will be back to certainly talk about more of these kinds of issues. Oh, time. I was going to do a spoiler alert for next week, but oh, yeah. start a school. Mm-hmm. And many parents say, my child's not motivated. Right. We're going to talk about motivation next week. All right. Okay. Back so for that. All right. So until then, stay happy, stay healthy, and forget to be afraid.